0: Welcome back to the 198th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the passage of the uh, National Defense Bill could actually reinstate some of the security protocols that allow the U.S. government to spy on you, and two interesting articles that really talk about the hypocrisy, or at least talk about the international system that we live in, and highlight how it is kind of a joke at some points. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, if you are to go back in time, and you know that when the U.S. government, after the 9-11 attacks, is going to pass the National Security Act, and they're going to expand the surveillance state, and maybe it does allow us to hunt down some of those... peculiar people, those terrible people who attacked us on the 11th of September, but also that it's going to give the government powers to investigate you, and eventually when they don't have targets externally, they will use it, that intelligence system, the giant national security apparatus, they will turn it inwards towards its citizenry, would you allow them to go forward with it? And if it comes up now, which it is, at least part of some of the powers are coming up again, would you be okay with allowing it to go forward? Would those arguments of defending the nation and protecting the domestic population still resonate true with you? So if you want my opinion, you're going to have to stick through the first article that comes from the American Conservative, Uh, The headline reads, Stop the Biden Big Brother Better Law. So, yeah, if you can't tell where they're coming from, like I highlighted at the very beginning, calling it Biden Big Brother alone is enough to evoke 1984, and a lot of people don't necessarily have a... uh, They have a great impression of the writing and of Orwell. They don't necessarily love the society that is perpetuated within the book itself. So... Let's jump to the first quote so you can kind of get an understanding of what's going on here. Quote, don't trust any bill so large that it has to be delivered by handcart, warns Senator Mike Lee. He's a Republican from Utah. The top Senate opponent to the rubber stamp reauthorization of the federal surveillance powers. With bureaucratic rascality, uh, wow, rascality? I think that's the best way to pronounce it could be hidden in the 3,000-plus pages of the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. Is this the Biden-Big Brother-Better scheme many conservatives fear? Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act will expire on December 31st unless Congress reauthorizes the provision. Biden appoints and appointee and FBI Chief Christopher Wray seek to stampede Capitol Hill to perpetuate the law with no real reform. But the deep state cheerleading squad is encountering fierce opposition on the Hill. So there's a few different aspects to this. And the first one is, of course, hey, I don't want to be spied on. I do not want the NSA FBI looking through any of my records. And a lot of people always make the argument well, you know, I don't do anything wrong, so I'm not necessarily against it. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not like I'm doing anything illegal. And that's great. But also remember the world we live in, which is cancel culture. They go back to actions that you did 10 years ago that were socially acceptable then, but are not socially acceptable now. So you could be socially ostracized if somebody wanted to weaponize this information. Because remember, they don't just look through it actively. They store it. They keep a record on you. They are The U.S. government is one of the largest data maintainers, especially of its own population, but also of people overseas in the United States, if not the entire world. So, think of it that way. But also, you don't know what's going to be illegal in the future. I'm not saying that we're going to go down a dictatorial path. I'm not saying that we're going to go towards authoritarianism. But eventually, if we do, and I know it's a hypothetical and it's hard to base your life off of hypotheticals because anything could happen. But just have it in the back of your mind that if the country takes an authoritarian turn, or even bureaucrats want to weaponize something against you, they could compile a whole bunch of your different actions and apply certain things. They could... Do Do things that look mundane or even are socially acceptable, but try to spin them in a way that makes things look malicious or the law itself can change. And then they can say, oh, well, look, I mean, this was before the law changed, but we know how wrong it is now and we have data about it. And honestly, it's also just my data. It's my data. Even though I'm willingly giving it up to certain companies, that is because they are giving me value for what I am giving up. And for the most part, not 100%, but for the most part, you know what you are giving up to these companies. You don't necessarily know how they are going to use it. And that is scary, just like you don't know how the government's going to use this information. And you might be saying, well, okay, you said that it's okay to give up your information in order to gain a service, and guess what the United States is doing with that information, what service they're providing you? They are going through and finding people who are threats to the nation. But my question to you is this. Google's platform, Google's need, all of these other platforms that take your data and want to keep you on there, that's exactly their goal. They can only monetize off of you if you stay on there. So they're not going to try to directly attack you and get you out. What government or what the government does with this information is they're trying to protect the overall society, they're trying to protect the nation. So the idea that they are solely focused on keeping you on the platform, you within the society, does not hold as true. And I think that is one differentiation between the big tech companies and the government and how they actually go about their processes that shows that, hey, at the end of the day, they don't actually supply as much value as some of these companies do, making business easier, making your life easier when trying to share documents with a friend or certain things like this or giving you certain ads. Rather, they actually don't have to rely on you staying on the service in order to get their job done. They have to get people out of the system who they believe are threats. So therefore, they're going to come in with a very very specific perspective, which is the government says, how can we get people out who are threats, versus Google and all these other companies that say, how can we keep people on with the information? Those are two very different, fundamentally different Perspectives and they lead to very different outcomes. And, you know, on principle alone, I don't like anybody seeing my data. But especially it, when it comes to the government that has a monopoly on force, I do not want them to have it as well. So when you hear people standing up for this, this is an amazing thing where there's like, hey, hold on, slow your roll. I also love this because it shows that hey, we are willing to peel things back. We are willing to take certain things. If it actually does, you know, this coalition does stand and prevents it from being passed on these bases and get it cut out, then it actually shows that we're willing to repeal things. And it's not a direct repeal. Rather, it's a lack to recertify, but it shows that government can go back on what is done in the past. And just because you put something in doesn't mean that it is always going to be on the books. And between administrations, we do have changes and we have a lot of executive orders that are overturned. But it's a lot more difficult when things go through the legislator. So it is, a, in my mind... A sign of hope that we can change if we recognize the problems of something in the past, we can peel it back, or if we're wise enough at the beginning to say, hey, we have to recertify this, we have to make sure that we vote on this every few years, then, hey, if the populace changes, if the mood shifts, if there's a different understanding, we're no longer in a great state of war like we were during the early 2000s, then the people can elect people into office that will actually say what is in their best interest and protect their rights and their freedoms. I think it's a great thing. It's a good sign, in my opinion. But it's not quite that simple, either, because... At the end of the day, you, the surveillance state, they're not going to give up their powers. They're not going to be willing to just outright say, oh, yeah, we're going to give up on this one. No, no, no. Quote, from the beginning, federal agencies blazingly lied about the number of Americans whose privacy was ravaged. In 2014, former NSA employee Edward Snowden provided the Washington Post with a cachet of 160,000 secret email threads that the NSA intercepted. And this is what's going on here. Not only are we giving up our information, but when we ask them, hey, what are you doing with it? Or how much of it are you collecting? They don't even tell us the truth. If they want us to trust them in their job, they have to be transparent. And any government agency, especially an intelligence one, is not going to be transparent. Especially when they're doing something they know that we wouldn't like, which is spying on their own citizenry. Quote, the Post found that 9 out of 10 account holders were not the intended surveillance targets, but were caught in a net the agency had cast for somebody else. Almost half of the individuals whose personal data was inadvertently commanded were American citizens. The files, quote, tell the story of love and heartbreak, illicit sexual Uh, liaisons, mental health crises, political and religious conversions, financial anxieties, uh, disappointed hopes, the Post noted. If an American citizen were an email and wrote an email in a foreign language, the NSA analysts assumed that they were foreigners who could be surveilled without a warrant. And there we go. There are flaws in any system. So to believe in the absolute goodness of protecting our nation in the mission is even, I would say, disillusioned with some of these quotes, which is, it's a human system that is inherently flawed. Now, if someone was to use that argument all the time, saying... It's inherently flawed, so we can't do it. That would basically be all of government. That would be any initiative that people take up. But we took it up. We understand where it went wrong. We understand why it went too far. We have seen the flaws now, and we need to take it back. We need to have a digital bill of rights that outlines what type of data can be taken from people, at what cost it can be taken, uh, where this data is being stored should at least be somewhat available, not necessarily an exact uh, address of the server where they're keeping your data because hackers could uh, somehow get into your accounts and then find your data very easily. They could, you know, they would be able to basically, instead of fishing around in order to get directly to your data, if they were smart about it, they could find the server, the information that you may have been given through an email about which server your data is on, and then they could very easily go and get it. Now, the argument is, If they're able to hack or at least get into your system enough that they can find the code to the server or the location of the server, they're probably already getting all the data they can. But my overall point is this digital bill of rights, having more awareness of what our data is being used for, where it's going, how much it's costing us, That needs to be established before we move forward with an overarching defense bill that outlines that, oh, yes, the government can actually surveil its own citizens because we need to know when they're surveilling us or... If you don't want, if you want to make a national security argument, which is, oh, we don't want to tell everybody when we're surveilling them, I think they, they would have to disclose it every year or two years, unless they can get a very special provision from a person higher up in the Department of Justice or a judge, not necessarily a FISA warrant, because we've also seen this system is corrupted, but maybe a new process to say it's an ongoing investigation and. You know, you may be saying, well, they'll just say everything's an ongoing investigation. That is also fair. But considering how many people's data they have taken, it is no fewer than 3,394,100, sorry, 0.53. So, To have to file all that paperwork for those three million, almost three and a half million people, that it's an ongoing investigation while we're surveilling them, that will be a complete nuisance to them, and they won't continue to do it. Normally, I don't like barriers in the process of government, you know, pointless barriers put up by bureaucrats, but if there are barriers put up to limit the bureaucrats, to limit the legislators, the lawmakers, the regulators, to any intelligence agency, if they are barriers meant to protect the rights the freedoms and the liberty of the people of this nation. I am totally for that 100% of the time. So as this one goes up, as the pushback gets a little bit stronger, and as you probably see some of the talking heads or people who talk about this, you know, the online crowd that tends to be a little bit more libertarian, a little bit more anti-authority is probably going to lean on the side of, yeah, no, no, let it lapse. And the mainstream media is going to say, well, a lot of our... um, Our business models are built on some of these ad revenues, especially now in this new age. So we don't actually want to set a precedent where people have more rights to their data and where they expect privacy. So we're actually probably going to come down on the side of the reauthorization of the NDA without there being uh, any issue whatsoever. So we'll see how this one plays out. Keep your ear to the ground and make sure that you are tracking everything that's happening. And I would say if there's a petition for an online or a digital bill of rights, find it, track it down. We've talked about this a few times in the past. It's going to be not necessarily a crusade, but something I bring up a lot more often because as we move into a more virtual world, which we've already been doing, and now that we have an understanding of the implications of the world we live in, at least some of them, We should seriously, seriously consider putting one on the books or at least getting Congress in the Senate and the White House to acknowledge that it needs to be done. All right, so we're going to jump to our second article, which is also in tandem with our third article. We'll get to that one a little bit later. Uh, This one comes from The Prospect. COP28. out So for those of you who don't know, the COP28 summit is going on, and this is an international meeting of the top countries who are trying to move towards an environmentally friendly future. Uh, I would say last year in Egypt, it was kind of pointless. Uh, There hasn't really been anything huge since the uh, Paris Accords, and even then, I would say that It's a pointless agreement that has no binding authority. It's not like the U.S. said, if you don't meet these emissions, then we'll invade you. Or these other countries say, if you don't meet these emissions, then we're going to completely outcast you. Maybe you throw a few sanctions on there. But with the global economy is how it is. A lot of people can easily get around sanctions, especially with cryptocurrency and things of this nature out there. So the whole thing that I'm getting at with this article and the next one is this international order that has become the delusion of so many on the left and the right. The idea that we can export our decision-making to international organizations, that we can leave our sovereignty on the table and say, oh, yeah, COP28, how about you decide what rules we're going to align with? I understand there's something to treaties and alliances and things like that. Go do it on a one-on-one basis. You have to negotiate something with Britain, and you have to negotiate something with France, and then France and Britain also have to negotiate with one another. Then we can have an alliance. But when you get a whole bunch of these different countries together, and you create a body, a conference that you come to every single year, and you just get up there and uh, bloviate, you, you pretend that you are righteous, you know the correct way forward, It gets really, really annoying very, very quickly, and now with how COP28 is playing out, you can see the hypocrisy, the stupidity of these systems even more. Quote, if the sponsors of the latest diplomatic UN circus on climate wanted to stage a fiasco, they hardly could have done better than to to locate their meeting in Dubai hosted by a science-denying minister of technology with the oil giant companies as honored guests in the role of their ideologues. Why on earth did this happen? The bureaucratic answer is that the world's regions get to take turns hosting the periodic UN COP meetings, and it was the turn of the Asia-Pacific group. The Emiratis made an aggressive bid to host the sessions and got unanimous support from those nations. OPEC even has its own pavilion at the event. So, as much as I don't want to necessarily buy into the uh, environmental doom and gloom i do believe that environmental climate change is most definitely happening i think we can mitigate it very strongly uh, through innovation through private enterprise things of that nature i also want to acknowledge that it's going to make a lot of people suffer we're going to have Uh, probably scarce resources here for a while unless we really take it seriously and we do start those innovations a little bit sooner. We're going to have dry areas. We're going to have uh, larger fires in certain areas if we don't manage them properly. Uh, You could even argue that hurricanes are going to get stronger, which I think the science is kind of mixed on. At least some of the more well-informed scientists on both sides kind of go back and forth. But there's an argument that uh, heated waters actually change the, I, the way that these storms interact with the atmosphere and they can actually uh, grow a little bit stronger. That one's still not 100% fair. And also we've seen that over the years, we have become better adapted to deal with hurricanes and we've lost less lives, but there's still a lot of property damage. So all of these things are still in the basket, but I'm not saying that the world is going to end due to the environmental disaster that is impending. For a long time, it was 2030. Now, some people are pushing it back even further. It's just doom and gloom trying to force people in one direction or the other. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to take environmental issues seriously. That doesn't mean that we can't try to reorient some of these technologies and some of this investment into different technologies that will make us not only thrive on this planet, but the next planet. I mean, think about it this way. If we're going to Mars, we don't know if they have oil. We don't know if they had prehistoric dinosaurs and different plants that decomposed the carbon that was left in the ground and then becomes crude oil. So we can't just mine it there. We're going to have to have really robust, renewable energy sources there on Mars. So, of course, it's important for human flourishing to adapt these sort of technologies, put investment into them, so on and so forth. And if environment is the... Uh, how should you say, the diving board that we want to use to spring into some of these different sectors, let's go right ahead. If we want to limit the carbon emissions, if we want to make sure that we conserve the world around us, the beauty that's in the world, and we don't destroy it simply for our own greed, sure, these are all great things. But then when the mission of COP is to basically regulate environmental practices of different nations, and it has a very specific ideology. It has a very specific ideology, which is human climate change is a disaster, and we have to outright stop it, if not slow it down as much as possible. And then, they also bring in some of the big donors who happen to be oil companies. It seems like a little bit of hypocrisy. And yes, I do agree with some of the messages here, which is, at the end of the day, these oil companies, they're, they actually have to be okay with shifting the economy away because they have a lot of dollars out there. They have to be a part of this new green economy. Otherwise, they won't actually uh, shift resources and throw more R&D into that part of the economy because they feel like they'll be replaced. But at the same time, when you are an environmental meeting and you have lambasted oil companies and the oil producers and the consumption of oil in different uh, carbon fuels all across the world, and then you invite them there and you allow them to be a part of your conference, it is a mockery. It is freaking hilarious. Just because I don't buy into the complete doom and gloom, like I've mentioned a few times, it doesn't mean I can't notice something that makes me giggle a little bit. Quote, The political answer is not hard to fathom. So this is why are they there? Why are the oil companies in Saudi Arabia have such a strong presence? Quote, since Saudi, uh, since Abu Dhabi and Dubai are major oil producers, they were pleased to give their Western oil company allies a major role in the revising of the narrative. According to the new narrative being relentlessly promoted by oil companies, it's important to have oil-producing countries as well as oil companies as part of the solution. And it's neither necessary or economically smart to ban carbon fuels entirely, so let's concentrate on reducing carbon pollution by mitigating the impact. And, you know, I think that's a—if you're going to make an argument to an environmental group and you're trying to also placate the— Uh, free market economists and the pro-oil people, the drill baby drill people, that's a pretty middle-of-the-road argument that could scap off, you know, kind of bring the middle together a little bit. But it once again, they're pointing out the author's pointing out the hypocrisy here, and I just have to sit here and laugh. It's like, why do we give any credit to these international institutions whatsoever? All they want to do is try to strip the different nations that are participating of their sovereignty to bind them to agreements that may not be in their sole interest and of course, we do have to have an international mindset on some things. Uh, You know, we don't want the whole world breaking out into war, but does that mean that you have to put your own interests aside in trying to get there? No. The reason that we don't want the whole world to break out into war is because, one, it's terrible for the world— but it's going to be terrible for the economy of every single country around the world. Your self-interest keeps you from wanting the world to break out into war. And you could even make the argument that your self-interest may push you to uh, have more green regulations in place so that your country doesn't get swallowed up By all of the rising sea levels, which are lower than before, or the displacement, in this case, the displacement of oil-producing companies by green electricity, of course, your self-interest is to be there and advocate for a different way forward, which is exactly what Abu Dhabi is doing. But some of these agreements directly go against the interests of nations, saying that, oh, yes, we're going to get rid of, we're going to have a completely carbon-neutral economy by blah, blah, blah time, which I don't think is any particular rule that has been set in place, but it has been one that's been talked about. I We talked about it in one of my classes in college when we were talking about COP27 last year. So... When there are these sort of proposals that undermine the sovereignty of nations and go against their direct interests, it's absolutely hilarious to me why people take them seriously because it's like, oh, yes, we're going to give up our economy that allows us to thrive, that allows me to sit here and talk on a podcast, that allows me to have a beautiful job that I absolutely love, that allows the soccer mom to complain about gas prices because they're making so much extra money in America than they could be in any other country across the world. All of these things, all of these privileges that we have because we are promoting our own self-interest, and then going to international organizations saying, Hey, uh, what do you want us to do? What do you what rules do you want us to be bound to? And complaining that we're not doing enough and we're not meeting those goals? Come on. It just it's hilarious to me. And the next article also shows me about shows me the I don't want to say hypocrisy, but the not dull-wittedness, but just the annoyance of these international institutions. Uh, This one comes from Counterpunch, a resounding rejection of nuclearism at the UN. So, the non-nuclear majority met in New York between 27th of November and the 1st of December for the second meeting of the state's parties to the Treaty of Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This coming together was not simply non-nuclear, but decidedly anti-nuclear in outlook and approach. The TPNW represents many things. A work in progress, a part of international law, a mechanism for the eventual abolition of nuclear weapons, and similar. What it represents politically at the time of coming into force and since is a full frontal rejection of nuclearism and a challenge to the nuclear-armed world. Two MSPs saw discussions... And decision making on how to embed the uh, this aspect of the treaty. So you're like Alex, wait, hold on. De de denuclearization, isn't that isn't that a good thing? Don't we want to get rid of these nuclear weapons so that we don't end up blowing ourselves up in one giant war in the future? And in an ideal world, I 100% agree with you. But I also think it's very unrealistic. And when you sit down at a table and you are being unrealistic and you're being idealistic for the sake of international order and giving up your own protection and believing that other countries are going to do the same, I'm sorry, but that just feels really, really naive to me. Yes, I would love a world in which nuclear weapons don't exist. And we can push for that slowly but surely in disarmament, or we can see the use of them and then see how terrible they are again which I would say is the worst outcome. I don't want to see that happen, but maybe the people need to be shell-shocked into it because we haven't seen it in modern, the modern days. We haven't seen a modern bomb recorded from all the different angles sent out there and then you know to paralyze the people with fear. We haven't seen these sort of things, and it's not necessarily top of mind. So I think it's actually going to be really hard to get 100% approval from a lot of the populace, no matter how afraid they are, but also there's always going to be that rogue actor. Do you think North Korea is going to get rid of their nuclear weapons? Do you think China is going to now? If we approach in good faith, I'm not going to say it's completely off the table. But it feels very, very unlikely. And to put yourself at a disadvantage to come to a battle with a knife when your enemy has a gun is strategically stupid. And because of that thinking, in this defensive mindset people are not going to be willing to give it up. People are always going to be reticent to trust other people because other nations, like I had mentioned in the last one, are going to work in their own self-interest. And having a deterrent like a nuke or having a weapon like a nuke is an amazing thing to have in your arsenal. Therefore, it's an amazing thing to have ...for your own interest, either offensive or defensive. So this is why I think that it is stupid. Limiting the use of these weapons, putting up as many barriers as possible... ...raising the threshold as to why we should use them... ...and decreasing the number, sure, I'm all for these. I think they're smart moves because we don't want everything to necessarily be on a hair trigger... ...where we could absolutely destroy ourselves at any given moment. But believing that we're going to completely get rid of them is naive. Do you think that Pakistan and India are going to stand across from each other with the wars that they've been facing and get rid of their nukes? Do you think India and China are going to do such a thing? Like I mentioned earlier, North Korea. Do you think Russia versus the rest of Europe and NATO are going to get rid of their nukes? Come on. It is not the time. It is not the place. And yes, we can be idealistic and try to move towards it. But once again, ceding your self-interest, your protection interests, your offensive interests to an international group who is trying to pretend like they are righteous simply because they are from around the world, they're from different cultures, and they believe in higher ideals, that does not mean that you have to obey them. It does not mean that their interests, their, I don't want to say lobbying efforts, but their angle that they're approaching this from is any better than the self-interested, kind of selfish, but... Sovereignistic, if that's a proper word, view of a lot of these nations that have these weapons. So it just shows the hilarity of the international system that we're trying to build. And at the end of the day, maybe we will become one giant world underneath the UN when eventually Mars succeeds and becomes its own planet. Or, you know, the moon, the colonies rebel or something. I don't know. There may be the possibility. But right now, we can't see past our national borders. And you shouldn't necessarily do so because there are so many divides in the world. There are so many different cultures. And it would be almost impossible to have all of these people under one government that the internationalist, the globalist agenda, that eventually everything will be 100% globalized under one roof, under one administration, under one giant, I would say, international order? Come on. We're not quite there yet, and nations shouldn't give up their sovereignty to get there either. So with all that out of the way, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from NBC Los Angeles. L.A. Zoo shares images of its adorable new ocelot kitten doing kitten things. So when I first saw this, I was like, oh, my goodness, absolutely adorable. Uh, I'll just read a quote from the first paragraph here. The Los Angeles Zoo had shared photos and videos of its new adorable ocelot kitten achieving cuteness goals. In the video and photos released Monday, the kitten is seen wrapped in a towel, standing on its hind legs and playing with crinkled paper and pouncing on pumpkins and this guy is absolutely adorable and the pattern on him as well is phenomenal so if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's article there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button also down there you can find the podcast on spotify pocketcast google podcast as well as podvine and If you want to find the Twitter handles down there at your daily flip, post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday over there. Less scripted, just kind of off the top of the head, something I'm reading or just some ideas that I've had. Uh, Sometimes I say really stupid things. Sometimes I say insightful, insightful things. So go over there and listen. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.